الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد So carrying on then from the section that we began last week باب قول الله تعالى قل فأتوا بالتوراة فتلوها In this section now, Sheikh Al-Athameen, he's going to go through the sections one by one, giving some explanation regarding each section. So the first section then, قوله تعالى قل فأتوا بالتورات فتلوها Say, come with the Torah and recite it. هذه الآية نزلت عند قوله تعالى كل الطعام كان حلا لبني إسرائيل إلا ما حرم إسرائيل على نفسه على نفسه من قبل أن تنزل التوراة قل فأتوا بالتوراة فتلوها this ayah was revealed in the context of the ayah in Ali Imran number 93 that mentions about things being permissible and impermissible upon the Jews that they had, or Bani Israel, that it was permissible upon them except what they made impermissible upon themselves before the Torah was revealed. المقصود من ذلك تكذيب اليهود في منعهم النسخ. The point was regarding the abrogation, that it was belying them in their claim that abrogation cannot occur. The revelation when it came, it may abrogate previous rulings things that were initially established and we gave the example about visiting the graves but they did not accept this abrogation because that would then be a means a justification for them to reject Isa alayhi salam and then after that to also reject Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because they said they said the legislation it cannot be abrogated so whatever came initially that's it the legislations cannot be abrogated they claimed so that meant they could stick to what they were given originally and no longer be uh, under the Sharia of Isa salam when he came or under the Quran and the Sunnah when Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam came. It was a means, this principle of theirs was a means of rejecting the revelations that came afterwards so that they could remain upon their way 
without having to accept the final messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam وَالنَّصْرِ طَعَنْ فِي اللَّهِ عَزَّ and they began to give justifications like saying abrogation is in reality a criticism of Allah that you're saying he revealed something and then something else is different to what was revealed before abrogating and wiping out what was revealed before that's a criticism of Allah they began to say لأنه يلزم عليه البداء لأنه بدا له غير ما كان عند عنده أولا because they began to say if Allah revealed something in a particular way initially and then something else was revealed that abrogated the first revelation then it's like saying that Allah realized something later on that he didn't realize initially that's why they say the revelation came afterwards and abrogated something it must mean that Allah has now realized something better than the original revelation and so he sent the new one but obviously saying that is attributing deficiency to Allah to say that he didn't realize something initially and so the revelation came in a particular way then he realized a better thing and so the revelation came to abrogate the previous one they say that can't be the case that would be associating deficiency to Allah saying that he didn't realize initially and then realized and sent a new revelation to abrogate the other one logical in terms of the fact that you cannot associate deficiency to Allah absolutely you cannot associate deficiency to Allah so they use these types of arguments to say abrogation can't occur what we were given that's it we're not going to accept Isa alayhi salam and the revelation he came with there's no such thing as abrogation we're not going to accept what Muhammad came with there is no abrogation if there is then you're saying deficiency attributed to Allah you are saying that there is deficiency attributed to Allah that initially he revealed the revelation and then he realized there was a better one and then revealed that so he didn't realize initially they say you are attributing deficiency to Allah if you say that and so they rejected the revelations that came but we say what do we say how do we reply to those types of things how do we reply to this claim of theirs that if abrogation occurs if a sharia was revealed and then a new sharia was revealed abrogating the previous one and another new one then was revealed the final one the quran and the sunnah abrogating the previous ones then it must mean allah only realized things at certain times and then sent the new revelations as and when he realized it was better and that can't be that's a deficiency how do we explain all of these things because abrogation obviously does exist obviously it exists definitely but then how do we respond to these types of things that they say the sheikh says abrogation is something established even within the torah itself abrogation is something established 
even within the Torah itself وفي جميع الشرائع and in all of the revelations ولا يلزم منه البداء على الله and that doesn't necessitate that Allah realized something later doesn't necessitate that لأن الله عالم بالحكم الناسخ because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all aware of the abrogator and the thing which is being abrogated all of that is within the knowledge of Allah nothing appears to Allah later nothing occurs to the realization of Allah later Allah knows all of what is to occur what it is and how it is but how does abrogation occur then and why does it occur then one of the reasons the scholars have mentioned is because at certain points in time a certain revelation is more appropriate to the people then at a later point in time a difference in that revelation slightly different is more appropriate the example regarding the graves is an easy one when they first became muslim they had just left all of that shirk all of the shirk which was primarily as one of the key aspects built upon grave worship so when they initially became muslim it was appropriate that there is no permissibility to go to the graves block that off until they become established in aqidah and they understand when they did now it's appropriate that you can go to the graves because there is a benefit you give salam upon the deceased and it reminds you of the afterlife so in the early stages of islam it was appropriate to not be allowed to go later on when islam became established now it was appropriate that they do get to go and be reminded of death etc so at different times different rulings may be more appropriate so that doesn't mean that Allah ruled in one way at one time and then later realized that there was something better and then ruled with it and sent the revelation with it Allah always knew what everything is and how it's going to be and all of the decree but he decreed or sent the revelation in a certain way at a certain time because at that time it was the most appropriate for the people then later on at another time Allah changed it abrogated it the nasr occurred because then at that time something else was more appropriate for the people the state and the situation of the people there are examples in the different legislations of the prophets and messengers tawheed we know does not change all of the prophets and messengers they came with the message of tawheed but other legislations and rulings did change between the revelations of the prophets and messengers there's an example regarding yusuf at his time it was permissible to do what to prostrate to a person so you could make 
Sajda to a person, prostrate to a person, and what is that prostration? Of worship, yani you could worship another person. So it can't possibly be a prostration or a bowing of worship. Because like we just said, Tawheed, it stays exactly as it is throughout all of the revelations. So they were allowed to bow to others, prostrate or bow to others, to people, but not as an act of worship. Let's get that straight from the beginning. It was not as an act of worship. Absolutely not. Because at that time, establishment of Tawheed was there, just like in every time, every prophet and messenger. What it was then, was a prostration of gratitude, respect, honor, those types of things. Not worship and obedience and submission, not that. Respect, honor, that type of thing. Whereas in this legislation now, prostrating in worship to somebody is forbidden, just like it was forbidden in every other revelation. But prostrating to somebody not for worship or submission, just respect and honor, etc., is also in this legislation impermissible. Whereas in that one, for that angle of it, it was permissible. And there may have been reasons at that time, and now the reasons at this time. Appropriate at one time, and not appropriate any longer for absolute uh, perfection of that Tawheed, because it would be a deficiency, certainly. For a person now with his Aqeedah, depending on what he thinks and why he's doing it, but even if a person claims they're only doing it, nothing to do with worship. They're just doing it for some other reason. Like when you do some of these martial arts. When you do some of these martial arts, then at the beginning, you have to do some of this bowing. Anybody here do any martial arts? Don't be shy. Nobody? All Masakin gonna get beaten up in the streets? So when you do martial arts, certain types of these martial arts, you got to do the bowing at the beginning to the opponent. Permissible or not? A person says, a Muslim says, I know absolutely nothing to do with worship, but just to go and get my belts, I've signed them, I've given my membership. They just make you do it. I know absolutely the Tawheed, the Aqeedah, everything. It's just I close my eyes and I do it, you got to do it. So is it allowed or not? Not at all. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar to that bowing of respect that they did at the time of Yusuf alayhi salam. Absolutely. It's haram, impermissible to do this bowing at the beginning of these martial arts and things. If that's what they force you to do at a certain club or whatever it is, then you cannot participate in that. You cannot do that bowing at the beginning, and this is what the scholars have mentioned. So, <clears throat> that's just examples of how the legislations do change. The point here in this opening section was how the Jews refused to accept that legislations can change and be abrogated. They wanted to remain upon what they had and stick to that and refused to accept 
the revelation of Isa alayhi salam that came after, or the revelation at the end, the final one of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That is one point. Then after that, these are all just a series of points now from the title of the chapter. The second one, La yamassuhu mutahharun. None can touch it except the pure. None can touch it except the pure. What is the it? The Quran, yani the Mus'haf, not the Mus'haf. Quran, but now they're making a distinction here. The Quran is in the preserved tablet, the Quran, you have the Mus'haf here in the mosque. None can touch it except those upon purity. It, i.e. the preserved tablet with the Quran or the Mus'haf here or what? So what are you saying? The Mus'haf, you can touch it without wudu? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anybody else? Ikhtilaf. As they say, any question you get asked, just say there's a difference of opinion. And you're safe. So, here it says, As-Sahih, what is correct with the tafsir of this ayah, because obviously this is the example, this is the ayah that many scholars used to say, none can touch it except those upon purity, i.e. none can touch the Mus'haf, the Qur'an. None can touch it except that you are upon wudu, except that you are upon purity. You shouldn't pick up the Mus'haf if you haven't got wudu. Many scholars use this ayah as the proof and it can be used. It could be an example and a proof for that, that you should not touch the Qur'an unless you are upon purification. But there is another tafsir of this ayah, and that is that it refers to الكتاب المكنون لا على القرآن لأن الضمير يعود إلى أقرب مذكور ولأن الجملة خبرية وليست طلبية ومعلوم أن القرآن يمسه المطهر وغيره وأما من قال إنه يقصد بذلك القرآن وأن المراد لا يمسه إلا المطهرون الذين طهروا فهذا ليس بصحيح لأنه لو كان الأمر كذلك لقال لا يمصه إلا المطهرون. So the other tafsir of it is as mentioned that it is regarding the preserved tablet and that it refers to the angels. So that's why you have a difference regarding the, the mushaf that we have now. Can you touch that Quran without wudu or not? There is some difference over it. Of course, what is generally accepted by the scholars in that and from what I recall is the majority opinion but you can double check as your homework is that you should be upon wudu to touch the Quran but it's a difference that does exist and some scholars will say there is no definite evidence for that there is no definite evidence for it also they say this ayah it is not a request 
It doesn't say you should not touch it except if you are on purification. It doesn't, the ayah doesn't come across as a request. It is mentioned as a statement. None touch it except the pure. Not, and do not touch it unless you are pure. That would be like a request. If it was like that, then it would be more obvious it's referring to the, to the Quran, the Mus'haf. But it doesn't come as a request. It just comes as a statement. None touch it except the pure. As a statement, as a fact. So the scholars say that again is in reference to the angels, etc. Not to us and the Mus'haf. But it is a difference of opinion. And uh, certainly, no doubt, ihtiyat, at least as they say, it would be preferred and better. Uh, certainly that a person is upon purification when touching the Qur'an, when reading from the Qur'an, Mus'haf. Then the next part, مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ حُمِّلُوا التَّورَاتَ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَحْمِلُوهَا كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ يَحْمِلُ أَسْفَارًا So those who were given that burden or that uh, uh, revelation of the Torah uh, and they were taught that Torah but then they did not establish what they were taught in it and that is in reference to the Jews the ones who were given that revelation given that revelation of the Torah and taught it but they did not carry it meaning they did not establish it and act by it and go upon what the teachings of it were they did not establish the right of that revelation so their example is like the example of a donkey carrying books the donkey that is carrying the books why is that an example given here of the ones who are given revelation but they didn't practice it? A donkey carrying books, why is that an example? Huh? The books have benefit in them or not? Absolutely. But you give those books to a donkey, the donkey reads and benefits from those books? Not at all. So the knowledge is all there, but the benefit is not being taken from it. The scholars incidentally quote this ayah as an example only, just linking the, the idea behind the ayah to people who buy books, buy lots of books and you have your shelves and you have plenty of books, but you never read the books. There are brothers. MashaAllah, sisters too perhaps, striving with knowledge, and uh, maybe they've learned a decent amount of Arabic now, and so they buy the books, the Arabic books, and they have shelves of Arabic books at home now, library at home. But if that's all it is, books that you buy and you put up on your shelf at home, Arabic books, you got two shelves, three shelves, four shelves, five shelves now. You got all these shelves of books. But if somebody was to come and ask you, this particular book here on this shelf, can you tell me about it? What is that book? What is the, uh, this book about? What does it talk about? 
and you have no idea, then the scholars, they say, this ayah, be very careful about what it says there. Do not end up like, a, like the donkey carrying the books. That you have all of these books and you're collecting them and you're gathering them and makes you feel good, mashallah, got 10 shelves of books around. And somebody comes to you and says, okay, this 15 volume book right here, what does the author talk about it? What's the organization of the book? How are the chapters worked out in the book? And you have absolutely no idea because you've never properly looked into it. You just bought it and it filled up another shelf of your collection. Then the scholars, they say, bear in mind this ayah. Bear in mind this ayah. It is not just about collecting the books and making them into your shelves and everything and you're not benefiting anything from them. You have no idea what these books are about, what the author is talking about in this one, in that one, how the book is even organized. That in of itself is a form of knowledge. That in of itself is a form of knowledge. Knowing what a book is about, knowing how the book is organized, knowing what the different types of books are, that knowledge of books used to be a specific semester at the University of Medina in the faculty of Hadith. Seventh semester or something, there was a specific semester purely about books. The teacher would bring in three or four different books every lecture, and one by one he would go through them. So for example here, we have Kitab al-Tawheed of Sahih al-Bukhari. He would say, okay, written by Imam al-Bukhari, give you a brief biography of who he was. Then he'll say, and in this book, the way he wrote it was that the first quarter of the hadith, they are about such and such a topic. And then he links that topic to the next quarter of the hadith by such and such a method. And every time he mentions the hadith, he always gives a chapter title in such and such a way. So that you have an idea of how Imam al-Bukhari wrote this book, in what organization it's in, how the chapters are connected, which topics come first, which ones come after, even though you may not have read the whole book. Obviously, some of these books are not to be read from beginning to end. That's not the way you do it with some of the books. Some of them are reference books. They are like encyclopedias. You don't just read an encyclopedia beginning to end necessarily. You go to the chapter, to the section that you're investigating or researching into. A dictionary, you don't just read a dictionary, you just go to the word that you need to check. So some books are like that, they are references. But you need to know how those reference books work. Imagine now you want to find a companion. You want to find the biography of a companion. So you look around, okay, I've got a book that has the biographies of companions in it. And there are books written by the scholars purely on biographies of companions. Some of them are small, some of them are large. Who can name us one? Al-Isaba is one of the most famous ones, written by Al-Hafid ibn Hajar, printed in 16 volumes, the best print of it. 16 volumes of just biographies of the companions. Others, Fadail al-Sahaba is a bit different. As the title suggests, virtues of the companions. We want just biographies of the companions. 
That's a bit different to Seer A'lam An-Nubala, famous book. Seer A'lam An-Nubala, a full shelf, more than a full shelf, 20-odd volumes. That book is biographies of the companions. Some of them are in there. Companions are in there, but also the Tabi'een are in there, the Salaf are all in there, and scholars after them are in there. That's a big book of biographies of, scholars, of uh, companions and after them too. Purely companions. Al-Bidayah and Nihaya similar to this, it goes through history. Usdul Ghaba. Usdul Ghaba. What does that mean? Al Ghaba. Forest. Usd. Asad. Lion. Usd. Lions. Lions of the forest. Title for the book on the biographies of the companions by Ibn al-Athir. But there are books like this. But in each book, how is it organized? The scholars who wrote those books will organize them differently. Sometimes you might find the book very easy organized on the alphabetical order. But sometimes no. You might be looking for Muhammad ibn such and such. You're looking for Muhammad, somebody by the name of Muhammad, the son of such and such. So in that book, you think, okay, alphabetical order, you go to meme. You go to the section of meme, and you can't find anybody called Muhammad. What's happened? No. What's happened is you bought the book, you put it on your shelf, and you've never looked at it, and you have no idea how it works. That's what's happened. And that is a calamity, because that isn't the way of a student of knowledge. Those who are serious with their studies, serious with talab al-ilm, serious about books and buying Arabic books and having the shelves at home, you need to have an understanding of what's going on with it all. And how are you going to gain that understanding? Primarily by attending the gatherings of knowledge as a start. You attend the gatherings of knowledge, you listen to the lectures of the scholars. A person who doesn't do that, doesn't have any uh, uh, schedule in proper study, has no schedule in attending gatherings weekly, properly, every week, not just here or there, has no real schedule in studying, then what is he going to benefit with shelves of books at home? Shelves of books and he has no proper schedule of studying, no proper uh, learning, memorizing. So it requires effort, not just show. And scholars mention this. This is not me just saying it. I've heard a Shaykh Al-Fawzan say exactly this. If you've got a bunch of books and you're not using them, then it's useless for you. A bunch of books at home, shelves and shelves and shelves, just for decoration, you're not a talib al-ilm like that. Somebody asks, you know, okay, tell me about this book of a Shaykh al mean, What does he do in it? How does he, how does he give his explanation? What are the chapters? How does it work? You know, that's why the scholars, they say, anytime you buy a book, you go to the library, uh, to the bookshop, and you buy a new book. Before you put that book onto your shelf, you bought this new book now, Kitabul Kabair, of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. 
When you buy that new book, you're not going to sit there and obviously go through and read the whole book straight away. You may read some sections of it, you may analyze some parts of it, but what you should definitely do when you buy a new book is definitely read all the introduction, all of the opening section of the book, and definitely read all of the contents and index pages at the end. The beginning and the end, those two parts will explain to you what's happening in the middle. Every book you buy, you should always carefully read the introductions. Read all of the introductions at the beginning carefully. And then read the contents page, the indexes at the end carefully. Because those two parts of the book will explain to you how the book works. What's in the book? Which chapters? Which sections? If you don't do that, you buy a book and you just flick through, oh, mashallah, this and that, and then oh, some chapter here, some chapter there, and then you put it into your bookshelf. You haven't got a clue what's going on with that book then. And if that's how your books are at home, you've got books in your bookshelf, but if somebody was to say to you today, okay, mashallah, you got this book, they go to your house and they see these books, what's this one about? What's that one about? This one of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, what's that one about? You haven't got a clue? then you're not really upon the way of the student of knowledge. So, take the words of a Shaykh Al-Fawzan with heed. He mentioned it, and I've heard other scholars say it too. It's not just about buying books and having shelves of books at home, and thinking I'm a student of knowledge, and I can read a bit of Arabic. It's about the reality of studying, the reality of being a student of knowledge. And that reality requires effort. It requires effort going through and reading all of the indexes and reading the contents and reading the introductions to books, trying to understand them. It's not something easy. So the point being here was that the Jews, they were given that revelation, but they did not act upon it and did not practice it. And this example was given regarding the donkey and the carrying of the books, that it does not benefit from it in that way. And you might remember the example of the Jahl Murakkab, a person who is upon jahl murakkab, what is that? Compound ignorance, what does that mean? There are, there are two types of jahl, two types of ignorance. What are those two types of ignorance? Jahl basit and jahl murakkab. Jahl basit the simple level of ignorance is that a person knows that he's ignorant. A person knows and understands that he's ignorant. He is jahil. He doesn't know. Done. But then there is the jahil murakkab, where a person is ignorant, he doesn't know, but he thinks he knows. He doesn't accept and understand that he's upon jahil. He is upon Jahal, but he thinks he knows. So the reality of him is that he's upon double the Jahal. Jahal Murakkab. He doesn't know, yet he thinks he knows. So then he ends up in even more problem. And that's why they say the example of the donkey of Tuma, Himaru Tuma. They say that there was a man in one of the explanations of the poem, a man by the name of Tuma, and that he had a donkey. And they mention in these lines of poetry as an example that the donkey said, If these people were just to me, then I would be the one riding Tuma. Tuma wouldn't be riding on top of me. 
Because the donkey says in this poem, I as a donkey know that I am upon Jahl Basit. I know I'm ignorant. But Tuma, he's upon Jahl Murakkab. He hasn't got a clue, but he thinks he knows. So in that sense, I'm superior to him. At least I know I'm ignorant. Him is ignorant, but he doesn't even know. And he thinks he knows everything. And he thinks he's this and he thinks he's that. And he's upon Jahl in reality. His ignorance is compound. So if they were just to me, I'd be riding on top of him, not him riding on me. In the poem they mention as an example of the simple ignorance and the compound ignorance. Which again, also, scholars, they talk about when it comes to students of knowledge. If you examine carefully the books of, uh, the books of Adab Talib Al-Ilm, the books that talk about the etiquettes of the student of knowledge, the etiquettes of those gaining knowledge and seeking knowledge. One of them, of course, is that the more you learn, the more you realize how ignorant you actually are. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know. And that's why they say, a person who wants to be called a sheikh, like everybody on YouTube now, a person who wants to be known as a sheikh, then you know for definite he's not a sheikh. Somebody who wants to be known as a sheikh, then you know he's definitely not a sheikh. Because as the scholars say, somebody who is actually a sheikh, then the people will recognize him as a sheikh anyway. Somebody who is actually a sheikh, meaning somebody who is of that level of knowledge, clearly you can see he has that level of knowledge from the, the people of knowledge, they will be recognized as a sheikh anyway. But somebody who needs to give the people a push to recognize him, you know, sheikh, sheikh, then you know he's not a sheikh. So now when you look at YouTube and all these places where everybody is by default, that's the, the starting package, you start as a sheikh, not even anymore uh, like a brother, used to be in the olden days, brother such and such, brother Abu Ma'ad is coming to give a talk. And then you go to uh, Ustaz, and then you go to something, you go to something, and then you go to Sheikh, and then you go to Mufti. Some of them, MashaAllah, like Mufti, that American one, Munir, my classmate. MashaAllah, he's got to Mufti, I'm miskin still, just Brother Abu Ma'ad. Brother Abu Ma'ad coming to give a talk, and he's Mufti Munir now giving a talk. And we were there together. I don't know what happened, I didn't do something right. So this is how it is with the people now. But. With that student, the studying and the student of knowledge, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. The Sahaba, the Salaf, it's mentioned in narrations. When they, sometimes somebody would come and ask one of them a question. He would pass it on to another one of the Salaf. Say to him, go and ask him. He would say, oh, go and ask another one, another one of the Salaf. Imams, scholars. He would pass it on to another one. The person would go around in a circle until he gets passed back. To the first person, none of them wanted to give fatwas and to be, I'm the one answering the questions and I'll give you the answer, come and ask me, Q&A with me and whatever else. They recognized their levels and their understanding and they didn't want to make mistakes. They only spoke with the knowledge they had. 
But now everybody wants to be recognized as senior brother and everybody wants to be recognized as knowledgeable and student of knowledge. Here everybody knows our rules. Student of knowledge, you want that type of thing to be upon the way of the student of knowledge, then everybody has to do their work. Nobody's coming here and telling us they're a student of knowledge and you never ever see them. Nobody's coming here telling a student of knowledge and they haven't memorized any of the mutun like the brothers here have. Student of knowledge, you have to do your work to show that you're upon talabul ilm in reality. Don't just claim, I'm upon talabul ilm and I'm this and I'm that. You come and do your work, you put your effort in, you memorize, you bring your books, you bring your texts. Like a Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abbad used to say, the one who comes to the class without a book, then don't try and tell us you're a talabul ilm. Don't say you're a student of knowledge and you come to the class without a book. So it takes serious effort, and we know the ground rules here. There's nobody here coming and pretending. The, the rules here are clear. Anybody now is studying, is learning, then it must be done properly. All of us here together, all of us. All of us we study, all of us we memorize, all of us we go through these books, all of us we do it properly, the studying. There is no excuses, there is no slack, there is no uh, uh, claiming that I already know this and I already know that. If there are people who know all of this already, like we've said before, Alhamdulillah, good for them. They can come and they can educate us on this book. They can educate us and give us extra points on what the Shaykh is mentioning here. So, the point being here regarding uh, the fact that they were given that revelation but they didn't act upon it. And then the last thing that is mentioned in this section was سَمَّ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ الْإِسْلَامَ وَالْإِيمَانَ وَالصَّلَاةَ عَمَلًا وَقَالَ أَبُو هُرَيْرَةَ قَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ لِبِلَالِ أَخْبِرْنِي بِأَرْجَى عَمَلٍ عَمِلْتَهُ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ قَالَ مَا عَمِلْتُ عَمَلًا أَرْجَى عِنْدِي أَنِّي لَمْ أَتَطَهَّرْ إِلَّا صليت وَسُئِلَ أَيُّ الْعَمَلِ أَفْضَلْ قَالَ إِيمَانٌ بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولَهِ ثُمَّ الْجِهَادُ ثُمَّ حَجٌ مَبْرُورٌ كل هذا يدل على أن العمل عمل العبد من فعله وكسبه وإذا كان كذلك فهو مخلوق Remember this whole section was talking about the actions of the servants and how we are accountable upon those actions and how those actions of ours are created and there's an example here in this narration that highlights that, that the Prophet ﷺ termed Islam and Iman and Salah, the prayer, as actions. And in another narration, the Prophet said to Bilal, tell me about the most hopeful action that you have done in Islam, the one that you think is the best action. He said, I haven't done many actions, better than ma amiltu amal arja indi anything better than an action better than the fact that every time I make wudu I go and pray to rakaat so that was an action of his and the prophet was asked which action is the best he said iman in Allah and the messenger then jihad then hajj those are obviously actions so this is concluding and sealing the point on the chapter regarding the actions of the servants and that they are our actions that we do upon the choice that we make that they are created our actions are created that's where we'll leave it for today then we'll start with the next hadith 
Uh, next week, inshallah ta'ala, straight after Isha, again approximately as close as possible as I can make it to 8.20 p.m. Uh, Isha, 8 o'clock, sah? 8 o'clock, so approximately 8.20 if we can. Uh, try my best to make it for that. Any questions or anything else before we round off? Go on. Um, I came across a very good question, which was um, sometimes we pray behind people who uh, hold, possibly hold, final silent ones. They don't recite for Fatiha. Can you pray behind them? The Imam has to recite Al-Fatiha. Remember. That issue of whether you have to recite Al-Fatiha or not in the prayer, you have to remember that issue very carefully how it works. When you pray, there is or there are three possible states that you could be in when you're praying. This is how to explain the Fatiha issue. There are three possible states you could be in when you're praying. What are they? Either you could be the Imam. In any given prayer, you may be the Imam in that prayer. Or you may be behind the Imam, being led by him. The Imam is obviously known as the Imam. If you're being led by him, that's known as the Ma'mum. And the third possible state is that you could be praying by yourself. If you're praying as the Imam, there is no difference of opinion. You must recite the Fatiha. Done. Finished. If you're praying by yourself, there is no difference of opinion. You must recite the Fatiha. The difference of opinion, therefore, only exists in the situation that you happen to be praying as one of the Jama'ah, being led by the Imam. Now, as one of the jama'ah being led by the imam, do you have to recite the fatiha or not? One opinion says, absolutely you must. Invalid if you do not. One opinion says, no, you don't have to at all. Qira'atul imam, qira'atullah. The recitation of the imam is recitation that covers you. And there is one opinion, Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned it, and the Shaykh Al-Fawzan said, Perhaps this is the most balanced of the opinions. And that is, in the loud prayers, you don't have to recite because you can hear the recitation of the Imam, so it covers you. But in the quiet prayers, you cannot hear the recitation of the Imam, so it doesn't, and therefore you have to recite. So in the loud prayers, the loud raka'at, you don't have to. The imam is reciting, you listen. In the quiet raka'at, the quiet prayers you do because you can't hear him. That is an opinion. The first opinion says, no, nothing to do with that. You got to recite every raka'at, whether you can hear him or not. There is no prayer for the one who does not recite the fatiha. And the other last opinion, like we said, they say, no, you don't have to recite at all. Behind the imam, the imam covers you. So there are the opinions. If a person is leading the prayer and not reciting, then invalid. That isn't even a difference of opinion. Where has he got that opinion from? It doesn't even exist. If he's leading the prayer, he should be reciting the Fatiha. If he's not, then no, don't pray behind him.
Anything else? An Imam who believes in Wihdatul Wujud, particularly the unification of all of creation, that the Creator and the creation are all intermingled as one entity. That type of deviance in Aqidah is more than likely what a Sheikh bin Baz was referring to when he said if they have an extreme deviance in Aqidah, don't pray behind them. A person who believes in that, the, the intertwining of the Creator and the creation, that we're all one existence, then that is probably of the level that you don't pray behind that type of person. No, not necessarily for that. This is not termed as the Quran. It's not termed as the Mus'haf. It has some ayat quoted in it, etc. It wouldn't necessitate that upon the opinion. Anything else? Last question. Before the Adhan. So are you allowed to pray a prayer before the Adhan? Anybody? Give me an example. What do you mean? So like today, Isha Adhan was what time? No? Isha, Isha. What time was the Adhan for Isha? 8.02 you're saying, huh? The Adhan for Isha happened at 8.02. So the Imam was... But what is the actual time? 7.45, let's call it. So 7.45 is the Adhan for Isha. So you're saying, could you pray Isha at 7.40? So, anybody then? Come on. You're going to move yourself from the brother level to an Ustaz level answering this one. Anybody? <laughs> huh? It's too low? Khalas, <laughs> Sheikh. Sheikh is an offer. Going once, going twice. Go on then. Can you or can you not? Who's going to answer? Not allowed at all. Not in the masjid, but at home you can. So at home you can. The time is entering at 7.45. Time for Isha, for example, enters at 7.45 p.m. Can you pray at 7.40? The answer... Uh, okay, but yeah, that's a, I understand what you're saying. But here then, about the times of the prayers, the time of the prayer, many of the scholars, they say, is the highest from the conditions of the prayer. The time of the prayer is of vital importance. It is not permissible to pray before the time of the prayer. Not necessarily the Adhan. The Adhan, if it's being done on the time of the prayer, good. Then you can't pray before the Adhan. But if the Adhan is being done late, and the time of the prayer has already come in, then you could pray in that scenario before the actual Adhan, the time's already come in. The Adhan is late. But 
the time of the prayer is the key. You cannot pray before. The evidence? The prayer has been established at fixed times. And that's why the scholars, they give examples about the uh, importance of the timing for the prayer. But imagine, as an example, as an example, you're out camping, you go out on a camping trip, you set up your tent out in the woods, and then at night you get robbed. Somebody comes, they steal your 200 pound tent, they pick up all of your bags, they get everything, they rip off the sleeping bag off you, and they run away with everything. You're left with just your boxes on. For example, the scholars mention this in the books of fiqh, and they say even more, you're left naked, for example. So you're left naked. The nearest town to get back into Manchester from where you are in the hill somewhere, it's two hours walk. No bus service, no nothing bringing you from there, no phone service, it's stolen anyway. So now, it's 6.30 a.m. This has happened. Sunrise is going to occur at 7.40 or something. You're never going to make it back to land, meaning to your city, to where, where you live, to get clothes, to pray Fajr. So what are you going to do? By the time you get back to your house, the time for Fajr will be gone. So are you going to pray out there with barely anything to cover your aura with or what are you going to do? Wait till you get back home and cover your aura and pray or what? Leaves from the tree. Get some leaves from the tree and things. In that case, the time is more important. You pray. Another example, even without covering your full aura. Covering the aura is a condition of the prayer. Time is a condition of the prayer. If the time's going to go out, but the aura isn't covered, which one gets priority? The time. You pray, even if your aura isn't fully covered. Impurity, the same thing. Imagine you're in a state of impurity, uh, uh, and the time's about to go out, meaning your clothes, for example, or, or, or the ground or something. Even there, the time is the key. So with timings of the prayers, they have to be looked after within the times. You cannot pray before the time of a prayer, and you cannot delay your prayer until after the time of the prayer. If you delay it till after the time of the prayer, there's no such thing as qada or qasa. As Sheikh al Thaymin said, there's no such thing for that. You pray in your times. Afterwards, you pray later when you missed it on purpose, it won't be accepted from you. You're a sinner for having left the prayer outside of its time. We'll have to round off on that for tonight then, inshallah ta'ala next week, after the Aisha prayer.